The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. We are live from London and from the Bank of Japan in Tokyo. Here are your headlines today. The Bank of Japan tweaks its yield curve control policy, revising its upper bound on the 10-year JGB yield as a loose reference rather than a strict cap for removing its unlimited bond-buying pledge. The 10-year JGB yield touches its highest level in over a decade. The S&P 500 climbs out of correction territory in its best day since August, but all three US majors are on pace to close the month deep in the red, their first three-month losing streak since March 2020. Chinese manufacturing activity, meanwhile, taking a surprising pullback in October, with services and construction also falling, undermining recent encouraging indicators and government stimulus measures. And in corporate news, oh dear, a bad day for Elon. Shares in Tesla sink, despite the wider market rallying hard, as its battery partner issues a warning on EV demand. Whilst Musk's stock plan for X uh, and their staff there shows he values the company at less than half of what he bought it for just a year ago. Uh, a warm welcome, everybody. I think we've just seen a very significant uh, set of events out of the Bank of Japan. It is without doubt the most interesting and top story of the day for our business viewers. So let's just get straight to it. The Bank of Japan has tweaked its yield curve control policy. Now, redefining 1% as a reference rather than a rigid cap on the 10-year JGB yield. What I think is stunningly significant is they didn't give us another cap. What does that mean? Uh, the central bank also kept its key policy rate unchanged at minus 0.1%. Now, that is widely as expected. The BOJ says it was important to increase flexibility around yield curve control, given current uncertainties in the market. Now, we're going to hear more from Kazuo Ueda in his press conference in half an hour. Just uh, to say, we'll take a very quick look at where <coughs> yields are trading, where the currency is as well. Uh, and the yield on the 10-year, 0.95. So not for now challenging that 1% reference point rather than cap as it previously was back from July. Interesting looking at the action on the dollar-yen. The yen is weakening, which I think very, very interesting. Uh, and Martin Sung, we are privileged to have you there. You're there for a G meeting, but you're also in Tokyo uh, to look at the Bank of Japan for us. So no move on interest rates themselves and taking away the cap. Just tell us about the significance as you see it, Martin. Lovely to see you, sir. Good to see you too, Steve, and good morning, early Europe and Karen as well. So, you know, it wasn't quite exactly much ado about nothing because something, something did happen, but it was all a little bit uh, anticlimactic. Uh, and, you know, you, you hit the main points there, and let's get right to the focus, which is what they did with the cap on the 10-year JGB yield. Before today's meeting, it had been 1%. It was considered a hard cap. Now they've changed the language to describe it as a reference cap. And for a while, a good probably an hour or so, we were struggling to figure out what on earth is a reference cap, right? 
So with a little bit of help from our friends over at Goldman Sachs, who came out with a note, their interpretation or take is, look, it's basically the BOJ giving the market a little bit more flexibility to do what it needs to do to set uh, prices right. And the BOJ taking a step back, more elbow room, as it were, uh, to move uh, there. And so you can interpret it, or GS interprets it as more of a hawkish move, believe it or not. But again, everything in Japan, as you know, Steve, is sort of incremental. It moves in, in tiny millimeters. And this was the case today as well with the change in language only to that uh, cap on the JGB uh, yield. But you mentioned uh, the price action. It's instructive, I think, to take a look at the, the end, which is now, if I'm not mistaken, still sub 150 and holding. So that's probably uh, pretty near flirting with uh, a 151.90 recent low, which was the weakest it's been in about 33 years, to put it in context. Flip side, though, the 10-year JGB yield now at about 95 bips, right? Uh, doesn't sound like much of a move. It's still five bips away from that 1% uh, cap there, but for the last week or so, that yield has been nudging 0.9. hasn't been quite able to get over that. It did today, though, and that 0.95 where it sits now is the high for the day. So high for the day for the uh, Japanese 10-year JGB yield, low for the day for uh, the Japanese yen. And one thing we're watching out for, Steve, at these levels for dollar yen, uh, could the Ministry of Finance, the MOF, intervene? Uh, you know, they are suspected to have been in the market about 24 hours ago when in reaction or just post a Nikkei report suggesting the BOJ would move to lift that cap to one and a half percent or 150 bips. Uh, we had yen uh, staging a significant rally up into the high 148s or so, although that paired back. Uh, so that's something to, to watch. We talked to a whole bunch of people. Uh, before and also right after the BOJ meeting. And your good friend of mine, Jesper Cole, was one of them. And I want to uh, talk about some of his expectations about this whole gradualist incremental approach to anything that happens in Japan. He makes uh, the point that, look, 1% compared to where rates are for the rest of the world is, is, is nothing, right? But consider a year ago, rates in Japan on the 10-year were practically zero. So to go from zero to 1% in a year is fairly significant. And his outlook is this. He thinks that short rates, now at zero, practically zero, are going to be at half a percent in a year's time. And that the 10-year JGB yield is going to be up at 175 to 2% even in a year's time. And the cap will still be in place, he thinks, but not at 1% as a reference cap, but at two and a half percent. So things move very slowly in Japan, Steve, but move they do. Back to you. Indeed. Mari, thank you very much for bringing us the coverage today. The Bank of Japan has also said it expected core consumer inflation to remain above its 2% target going into next year, adding that risk to prices were skewed to the upside. The central bank lifted its core CPI forecast to 2.8% this year while maintaining that some forecast, same forecast for 2024 and projecting a cooling off in prices in 2025. Shizuki Yamada joins us now, Chief of Japan FX Bank of America. Suzuki, can I just ask you about this policy today? Because it's been seven years since the Bank of Japan gave us a whole bunch of acronyms. QQE with YCC, it seems still wedded to this policy. Is it going too slow when it comes to exiting from extraordinary monetary stimulus? 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we have to separate, uh, you know, YCC from the front end policy. I think, uh, you know, on the YCC, uh, I think exit could be quicker. And I think today's move is, uh, you know, uh, uh, definitely watered down uh, YCC's meaning uh, because, uh, you know, 1% is now not a hard cap. But it's a reference um, uh, in 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 the operations, and you know what does it mean? Will the BOJ sit by and watch if the uh, tenure goes to one percent, or will it intervene? We don't know, and uh, we will find out uh, when the market goes goes there as soon as maybe this week. Uh, but I think you know the statement also said the strict one percent ceiling could have large side effects. So. Policy intervention may not be as strong as before, and the 10-year JGB yield could be let trade above 1% sooner than previously thought. So that's the YCC. But I think on the front end, uh, the BOJ probably still needs uh, more evidence to judge inflation, um, has been re-anchored to uh, 2%. And they're watching the upcoming wage negotiation to confirm sustainability of inflation. And I think that is why they're still um, sticking to QE and uh, you know, negative interest rate. Communication problem with the Bank of Japan and I'll cite in particular some of the analyst expectations. They were huge coming into this. UBS thought the band would widen out to 1.5% from 1%. Uh, Barclays were saying the Bank of Japan would scrap YCC entirely today. We didn't get any of that. So is there a communication error now between the Bank of Japan and markets? Well, you know, I, I think um, we were also expecting uh, the YCC cap to be raised to 1.5% from 1%. But, um, you know, I, I think the important thing is uh, uh, the BOJ doesn't want uh, the market to attack YCC because if it does, uh, it needs to pay the cost by expanding balance sheet. And also, uh, I think, uh, you know, letting the yen uh, weaken, uh, you know, too much. So, you know, the tweak was going to be uh, in, in, in some, some form, uh, either this meeting or, or the other. Um, it was very difficult to, uh, you know, predict because, you, you know, they still have sort of the target at 0%, the band uh, plus minus 0.5%, and then 1% hard cap. So, you know, it, I, the communication has been uh, always a difficult uh, for the BOJ when it comes to YCC. Um, so, but, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, what they wanted to do is let the market trade more freely the 10-year and they don't have to, you know, defend um, uh, YCC in a rigid way, as long as the move is gradual. If the move is gradual, I think they, they, they are going to be fine. Uh, Suzuki, um, there is just, just, I mean, I think we're all, as you say, going through this as well. There is no hard cap now to the yield though, is there? So, in, so despite everyone saying, oh, it's only a tweak, they've gone mealy-mouthed, it wasn't really enough, they've, they've got rid of the cap, as far as I can see it, or am I missing the point? No, you're not missing the point. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, technically there's no hard cap. Uh, if you look at the BOJ's picture that they just uh, published, they uh, erased the red line uh, from the chart. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there is no hard cap. Um, it doesn't mean the BOJ uh, doesn't intervene to the bond market. Uh, I think they will if the you know, move becomes uh, volatile. So, you know, it, it's close to, you know, what's happening in the FX market. I think when the volatility increases, I think the BOJ will be more, uh, you know, concerned and uh, will be ready to intervene. However, uh, if, you know, the, the move is gradual, 
And if the level is uh, where they think um, is justified by fundamentals, um, you know, they should be fine. We think the fair value of the tenure, uh, for the tenure is around 1.2%. So uh, probably, you know, policy intervention may not be as strong uh, at around 1%. Um, we're just going to put up a board of um, the, the updated guide on inflation, if we can, Shizuke, as well, just to show our viewers as well. Um, because actually, I think this is as significant as anything. You've got a Bank of, Infl- uh, Bank of Japan now, which is calling for much higher inflation this year, much higher inflation above target next year, and much closer to target in 2025. In the meantime, you've got Japanese trade unions who are looking for over 5% uh, for their workers in terms of pay rises as well. Um, What I think is almost as significant as our focus on yield curve control or the lack of it or our interpretation of what a reference point is, is the fact that you've got inflation picking up aggressively and a refusal to move rates to the upside as well. This is going to have ramifications, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the BOJ uh, may be fighting the last war, uh, which was, you know, deflation, disinflation. And... uh, you know, Japan is facing uh, the threat of inflation, um, you know, in the real economy. Uh, but I guess, you know, f- uh, from the BOJ's perspective, um, they did premature hikes um, twice in 2000. And that could have, uh, you know, that could be uh, their institutional trauma. And they don't want to fail this time. And also, you know, uh, I grew up in Japan, living here for, uh, you know, more than a few decades. And, you know, we didn't see inflation. Uh, okay, we, we've started to see inflation um, uh, f- for the past, uh, you know, two years or so. But, you know, to change people's inflation mindset, I think um, it, may, it, it may make time. It may take time. And at least that's what the BOJ is thinking. So I think, you know, this gradualism by the BOJ has to do with um, uh, BOJ's, uh, BOJ's history and also Japan's inflation history. Although uh, the BOJ, I think, is risking being behind the curve. Uh, final question for you, sir. I, I'd imagine a lot of our, uh, the Bank of America bond team over at the Treasury desk will be interested to know the following question. Um, is this enough to excite Japanese postal savings holders, Japanese holders of bonds in the United States to migrate those holdings back home? And you know why I'm going for this as well, because that is a longer term question that many people are asking uh, about US Treasury holdings. Is this the start, i.e. the catalyst for some of that money that has been parked in treasuries for decades to come home? Yeah, I mean, definitely this, uh, you know, steeper JGB curve uh, is becoming more attractive for Japanese investors. Um, But, you know, we have to remember last fiscal year, Japanese institutional investors did uh, aggressive portfolio rebalancing out from foreign bonds to Japanese, uh, you know, uh, Japanese assets. So the, 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 the aggressive part of rebalancing, I think, has been done going forward. Um, I think uh, it's more that uh, the Japanese investors will redeem, um, repatriate redeemed bonds uh, in the US, in, in Europe, et cetera, um, you know, back to Japan, rather than an outright sale. Um, that, you know, that's for the institutional investors. But I think for retail investors, uh, you know, the yields are still low. Um, you have 5%, 6% uh, you know, yields uh, you know, offshore. And we started to see inflation at home. So I think there's going to be rebalancing among Japanese investors from actually yen cash to you know, offshore assets. And that's going to be negative for the yen uh, in coming years. 
Sir, uh, thoroughly enjoyed your analysis. Thank you so much indeed for uh, giving us your time today on a, a stunningly busy day. We really appreciate it. Uh, Shizuke Yamada, who is chief of Japan FX over at uh, B of A. Uh, we've got numbers out from one of the biggest brewers on the planet. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, we continue to invest in our strategic priorities for the long term, so says the CEO. Net capital expenditure uh, between 4.5 and 5 billion US dollars in full year 2023. I'm not actually going to go into these too much detail because Sylvia has joined us. Nice to see you, Sylvia. Good morning to you. Morning. Uh, what should our viewers know about the latest Anheuser-Busch InBev numbers? Well, first and foremost, let me just give a, a broad picture before I dive into some of the details that analysts were looking for with this uh, set of results. First and foremost, when it comes to revenue, that can, came in line with analyst expectations at about 15.5 billion US dollars. Um, same uh, when it comes to EBITDA, that also came in line with analyst expectations. But then one of the big question marks that we had going into these results was what has happened in terms of sales in the United States, particularly because of that, the backlash that we saw earlier this year, sales of Bud Light had actually fallen in the United States. So actually, when it comes to sales in the United States specifically, AB InBev is now saying that their market share has remained stable since the last week of April through the end of September. So that's an important and positive development for this company specifically. When it comes to China, which also plays an important role for AB InBev, um, volumes there are actually flattish in the third quarter. So also an important one to keep monitoring and following um, in the coming months. And third, um, the big point also from these earnings is that they're actually announcing a share buyback program of one billion US dollar. Um, and at the same time, they're also an announcing a three billion US dollar cash tender offer. So a lot to digest in these earnings. But the key takeaway is that indeed they came uh, pretty much in line with what analysts were expecting. And indeed, we're seeing a positive development over in the United States. There have been brand issues though, right? So totally. Bud Light had these problems, a boycott by some conservatives, but now it's come out fighting in recent days, signing this uh, big agreement with the UFC. UFC. Yeah, exactly. So do you think this is going to make a difference uh, in terms of the, the volumes that we're going to see from the business? It might not make a difference, you know, super quickly, but it might make a difference in the long run. And actually, we are seeing the company saying that they're investing in this sort of partnership as a way to boost sales. And we know that, you know, it's quite common for them to partner with sports with celebrities you know they probably actually have learned their lesson in a way they might need to be a bit careful on who they choose to partner with but when it comes to fc particularly Sorry, we've like talked around the issue this is because dylan mulvaney a transgender influencer promoted the yeah. video on instagram conservatives called for a boycott this is this is what you this do both happened. just said there's yeah. issues it, it led to Bud Light sales actually falling in the United okay. States. They were the number one, but because so of this, they actually dropped. So you can only, dropped. O only <laughs> a certain type of person can drink Bud Light. Is that what they were trying to say, these boycott people? I don't understand it. There you go. I mean, That's my view, not CNBC's. Correct. All right. <laughs> We've got to take a break. Coming up on the show, the bears come out. JP Morgan's chief market strategist joins the crowd. Sounding the alarm over rosy earnings estimates will tell you why he's nervous. Plus, Governor Ueda prepares to hold a press conference as the Bank of Japan tweaks its yield curve control policy, or YCC. His policy uh, comments coming your way at 7.30 CET. And Carlsberg, if you want to hear more about some of the big brewers, Carlsberg sales are seen edging higher. We're going to break the numbers and speak with the group's CEO, Jakob Arabanderson. That is a first on CNBC interview coming out at 8 o'clock CT.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. We are setting up for a fairly large week when it comes to the earnings, to uh, central banks and, of course, to issuance from Treasury. But uh, on the vein, Monday, we saw a very strong bounce back. Investors snapping a three-day losing streak, returning to the Monday session with appetite to buy stocks. And you can see it was right across the board. The Dow leading the charge up 1.6%. Goldman's one of the big moving names for the Dow. But uh, also when it came to the S&P, you saw some appetite for tech and Worth noting, again, in terms of leadership, it was the likes of Goldman Sachs and Microsoft that had been leading the charge to the upside many months ago as we were chasing some of those uh, fresh 52-week highs. So both of those stocks active in the market yesterday in terms of what we had on the Nasdaq, 1.1% firmer. So much stronger today playing out for some of those big fang stocks. For the U.S. futures early on, as we look ahead to the trading session, doesn't look as though the green is going to stick around at this point. Don't forget we're counting down to a Fed meeting. Investors also eyeing that long end of the curve, the 10-year, and whether we get nudged around by some some of the Treasury comments this week. Of course, we had an update to those plans yesterday, the market uh, getting a sense of what they're going to see in terms of uh, some of the numbers coming to market in terms of supply. So uh, that is uh, still a big focus. We'll dive into the detail in a moment. But uh, worth noting, the high yield curve story around the supply issue has been a dominant feature over the trading month as we soared through the 5% mark on that 10-year yield. You could see markets flipped south and we're down about 3.25% on the NASDAQ. Funding costs all dominant, 2.8 down on the S&P, one and three quarters down for the Dow. So another loss-making month. In terms of performance for the trading month, third negative month in a row for most of these major indices. For US tech on the month, this is how it played out in individual names. It was somewhat of a mixed bag. Microsoft escalating. Don't forget, we had numbers coming out from some of these big names too. Amazon, uh, solid performance, but the one truly out in front was Netflix, a fairly blockbuster performance in a month, 8.6% firmer. Underperformers, it was the AI darling itself, NVIDIA, that lost some territory. Not much given all the upside we've witnessed this year, but a slight softening of 5%. In terms of uh, other downbeat performers, Alphabet, uh, slippage by the parent company of Google and Tesla very much in reverse, down 21%. To the US banks, also in lockstep together. And you can see that uh, the higher yield funding costs, potentially just destroying some of the narrative that we're seeing later on the NIMS. We saw a reversal too across the board and uh, concern too, I think, that banking appetite or some of the sentiment that the banks would be dealing with would be also soured by this latest conflict on the geopolitical side around Israel and Hamas. And you can see down 13% on Morgan Stanley, 7% reversal on Goldman Sachs. We all had earnings uh, to cross through over the course of the month as well from the sector. Now the 10-year yield, let's just take a look at the monthly performance on that yield, which of course was on a fairly roller coaster path over the month of October, 4.88, uh, an escalation of almost 6% on the so called safe haven debt. Uh, of course, it was a fairly large one. Now, the borrowing needs of the US government will decline in the final quarter. 
to $776 billion, down from the $1.1 trillion that it borrowed in the third quarter. Now, the Treasury Department sparked a jump in yields when it announced its third quarter projections in July, volatility that has continued throughout October. The Treasury added that it expects to borrow $816 billion in the first quarter next year. JP Morgan's chief market strategist is warning that Wall Street's optimistic earnings forecasts for the coming quarters will need to be revised lower. The executive says estimates of 12% forward earnings per share growth are divorced from risks amid a higher rate environment and softer consumer demand. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley chief U.S. equity strategist Mike Wilson is warning investors not to expect a fourth quarter rally, saying the chances of that happening have fallen considerably in the last month. Wilson is now forecasting the S&P 500 will end the year at 3,900, making him one of the most bearish calls on Wall Street. The Morgan Stanley strategist said he believes we are still against a late cycle backdrop where earnings remain at risk for most companies. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.